and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Episode 7. For the last few episodes, I've gotten pretty political, and believe it or not, that wasn't the original intent behind this podcast, although I have every intention of being political again. Today, though, I think I'm going to take a slightly different approach. My intention all along, of course, has simply been to explore the many facets of humanism, and to explore as many subjects as I can from a humanist or humanistic point of view, and to do so in a way that's not limited by the constraints of the classroom. So this time around, I think I'm just going to indulge in one of my great loves, which is mythology. This comes about as a result of a conversation I was having online a few days ago with a friend, in which we were talking about the use of mythology as a tool for organizing the psyche and understanding the psyche as a way to interpret both the external and internal worlds. Now, as a humanist, as an atheist, I still use mythology as an interpretive tool. I use it as a way of understanding myself, my relationships, my place in the world, the narratives in which I find myself embedded. So that being said, I think I'm just going to skip around through some various mythological motifs or themes, and see what comes up. Hopefully you'll find it useful. And as I sit here, just a few hours after posting the previous episode, I don't know where this one's going to go, or how it's going to end. I don't know exactly which bodies of myth I'm going to delve into. Hell, I may end up reading you selections of mythological texts from one tradition or another, and just seeing what comes out. So. Where should we begin? Well, the notion of beginning calls up the notion of time, doesn't it? And while this may sound strange, I think maybe it's not a bad idea to ask what we mean by time, how we understand time, how we experience it. Different mythologies, different worldviews have different accounts of time, and how we see ourselves as set or situated in time determines a lot of what kind of narrative we see ourselves acting out or making up or improvising or falling into. How much time do we need to account for? What direction does time go in? Roughly speaking, I suppose there are two basic patterns that we can look at. Growing up in a Western culture, imbued with various Western mythologies, I think most people will be familiar with the notion of a creation. That is, biblical mythology, the Genesis tale, tells the story of an actual creation by an actual God of the world in which we live. If you take this literally, as Bishop Usher did in the 17th century, you end up with the date for the creation of, I think, October 22nd, 4004 BC round about tea time. But even if you take it metaphorically, you're looking at a hard beginning, before which the world didn't exist. Intuitively, I suppose this makes sense, but maybe it only makes sense intuitively because I've grown up in a culture in which this is intuitive. But not only when we're looking at the Abrahamic mythologies, does time have a beginning? It also has an end, that is, there's a story moving on a straight line from creation to fall and continuing fall, to in Christian mythology, the incarnation of Jesus, and then later on down the road, the return, the dissolution of the world as we know it, and the final judgment. Well, that's just peachy. It's a nice story, it has a beginning, middle, and end, and it does have time moving in a one nice straightforward direction, namely straightforward. But this isn't the only way of looking at time. Other mythologies, other whole cultures view time quite differently, and some of these differences are also worth considering. In Hindu mythology, for example, the whole universe as we know it has existed for one day of Brahma, which is 4.32 billion years and the days and nights of Brahma alternate regularly, each being 4.32 billion years, in cycles of existence and non-existence, more or less. Or we can also say in cycles of activity and inactivity. 
In either case, what we're looking at here is not a linear but a cyclic view of time. This is reflected in the Hindu and the Buddhist and the Jain view of life as a series of reincarnations. Whereas in the Abrahamic mythologies you have one birth, one life, one death, and the world has one creation, one duration, and one ending. These are very different teleologies. In Abrahamic mythology, you have one chance to get it right, and the consequences are absolute. In Hindu mythology, you have a virtually unlimited number of do-overs, and your reincarnations are determined by your karma, the consequences of your actions, or, and or, by the wisdom you've acquired over the course of your life. And the objective is simply to get off that particular ride, to get out of the cycle, which can be read in the context of an individual life as a snuffing out of ego consciousness, something that I'll be talking about in future episodes. Now this notion of reincarnation is not unique to the Indian subcontinent. I think it actually is an Indo-European motif, a common Indo-European motif. It comes up also in Greek with the, with the notion of metempsychosis, uh, which is just another word for reincarnation. And there are hints of it in in Celtic and I believe in Germanic mythologies as well. So where you fit in time, how you fit in time, how much time you have matters a great deal, doesn't it? Something else that matters just as much and maybe more is of course how you relate to the gods or the god. We'll just say the divine to keep it general. And to be clear, I don't believe any divine things exist. But the metaphors are still useful. They say a lot about how we think. They give us a language in which we can address our own psyches and think about what passes in our own heads, but also what passes between us and the people around us and our societies and the world in which we live. What do we understand the divine to be? What does it symbolize? And here, I'm just going to be very honest and subjective. I find the metaphors of polytheism to be very useful. I find the metaphors of monotheism to be considerably less so. Somebody else might gravitate towards completely different metaphors and that's fine. I'm not evaluating in any objective way. But maybe we should talk a bit about the gods. And as long as we're starting from the beginning or as near to the beginning as we can get with written records, because of course written records only take up the last two and a half percent of our species existence, I'd like to take a look at the first in the oldest surviving cycle of religious hymns in the world. That is, the cycle of hymns to the Sumerian goddess Inanna, who also is known as Ishtar and who later became Aphrodite. Here's the beginning of a short hymn called the Hulupu Tree. This one has a textual history going back to 2000 BC easily. In the first days, in the very first days, in the first nights, in the very first nights, in the first years, in the very first years, in the first days when everything needed was brought into being, in the first days when everything needed was properly nourished, when bread was baked in the shrines of the land, when bread was tasted in the homes of the land, when heaven had moved away from earth, and earth had separated from heaven, and the name of man was fixed, when the sky god Anne carried off the heavens, when the air god Enlil had carried off the earth, when the queen of the great below, Erish Gigal, was given the underworld in her domain, he set sail. The father set sail, Enki, the god of wisdom, set sail for the underworld. And well, isn't that lovely? Obviously, we're looking at a polytheistic mythology, but the creation story here is also the earliest surviving written creation story that we have, to the best of my knowledge. And it speaks of the earth and the heavens being separated, as if they're already there, but they need to be ordered. The one needs to be separated from the other. Keep that in mind. The gods here don't seem to be transcendent. They are part of the world. They're working on the world, but they're in many ways within the circles of the world, we might say. Hold on to that because we're going to come back to a later version of this myth. Before we do though, I'd like to move on to a description of the tree itself. As I said, this is called the Hulupu tree. 
At least I hope I said that. Well, I've said it now. But what happens is the goddess Inanna, who was for a long time the most popular goddess of the ancient Mesopotamian world, and she maintained a popular following for a couple of millennia until her cult was virtually extinguished, of course, by Christians sometime between the 1st and 3rd century AD. That said, pockets of Inanna worship continued to exist right up into the 18th century, so she had a long run. Like Yahweh has a long time to go to catch up to her. Her particular departments or associations are love, sex, fertility, war, and often justice. So she's also associated not just with Aphrodite in Greek mythology, but also with quite possibly Athena. And that's really fun because, of course, in, in Homer, Athena and Aphrodite hate each other. They're on opposite sides of the Trojan War. But many of the Greek gods actually entered the Greek pantheon via trade with the Phoenicians, who, of course, were a Semitic people from the region in which Ishtar, going by her Phoenician name Astarte, and prior to her, of course, Inanna, had their cults. So there are lines of transmission here going to other mythologies that we are generally more familiar with in the West. It was the Phoenicians, of course, also who taught the Greeks how to write and, and who settled the city that would become Carthage and took their gods there, which would have really interesting ramifications for Rome. But again, that's a story for another day. As I said, a fascinating goddess, but this is not just the earliest story we have of her, but it's a story of her youth. So we'll pick it up with the tree itself. At that time, a tree, a single tree, a hulupu tree, was planted by the banks of the Euphrates. The tree was nurtured by the waters of the Euphrates. The whirling south wind arose, pulling at its roots and ripping at its branches until the waters of the Euphrates carried it away. A woman who walked in fear of the word of the sky god An, who walked in fear of the word of the air god Enlil, plucked the tree from the river and spoke, I shall bring this tree to Uruk. I shall plant this tree in my holy garden. Inanna cared for the tree with her hand. She settled the earth around the tree with her foot. She wondered, how long will it be till I have a shining throne to sit upon? How long will it be until I have a shining bed to lie upon? The years passed, five years, then ten years. The tree grew thick, but its bark did not split. Then a serpent who could not be charmed made its nest in the roots of the hulupu tree. The anzu bird set its young in the branches of the tree and the dark maid Lilith built her home in the trunk. The young woman who loved to laugh wept how Inanna wept, yet they would not leave her tree. Okay, I'm going to stop there and just see what we're looking at. Or rather, I'm going to bring in a couple of more myths and then throw them all together and see how they get along. The one I'm going to read you right now is a much, much later story than the one I just read you, than the Halupu tree. But there are some pretty clear connections between them. So, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening. And there was morning, the first day. Obviously, that's Genesis, book 1, verses 1 to 5. And if you want to check me up on this one, it's the New Revised Standard Version. Generally, when I read from the Bible, it'll be the New Revised Standard Version. That is my preferred translation. And just for complete clarity, the word translated as God in this passage is in Hebrew, Elohim. The El element in Elohim is also the name of the chief Canaanite god. And as some of you may know, it was from the Canaanites that the Hebrews had their ethnogenesis, that is, from whom they split off and became a distinct people. And this split at the time of the composition of Genesis 1 was very recent. So Elohim, even if treated as a monotheistic god, later in the text, isn't necessarily only a monotheistic god in Genesis 1. He still may have elements of the Canaanite god El. And I honestly believe that 
the view of Elohim as the singular only God is is probably a projection onto an earlier text through the eyes of a few different later traditions. That is, the monotheistic traditions need to interpret their early texts in monotheistic ways. And this is really no different from, from the Christian projection of Satan onto the onto the serpent in the garden, which in its original Hebrew context is just a snake. But it's not just the creation that I wanted to look at. What we also have in the Genesis myth is, of course, a tree, a really important tree in the middle of a garden. And not only is the tree in the middle of a garden, but we find that the tree has a snake problem. Now, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. So this is a fun one. The serpent in the tree motif is definitely a connection. And the figure of Lilith, though not biblical, has a long-standing tradition in Hebrew and Jewish literature and folklore as the first wife of Adam, the one who wouldn't submit to him until he got a more submissive wife, Eve. And incidentally, the Hulupu tree is the oldest surviving reference to Lilith. And while the Christian approach to Genesis has been to reinterpret the serpent as the devil. It originally, of course, is not a Christian book. It predates Christianity by several centuries. It's just a serpent, just as in the Hulupu tree. Something else that's worth, um, worth noticing here is that while the gods in the Hulupu tree are, well, to start with, plural, although Elohim actually is a plural form, and they're not described as transcendent, it's not self-evident that the Elohim of Genesis 1 is transcendent either. And it's not self-evident that he creates the sea and the earth. Uh, they seem to be already there. So again, there's this element of, of chaos and what the God, singular or plural, does is order it. So there's this ordering principle. And it's the ordering principle more than the creation that I want to actually focus on. Because, of course, I don't take either of these as actual accounts of an actual creation. We have science to do that job. And one creation myth is as good as another. It tells you absolutely nothing about how the world came to be. But what it does tell you is a great deal about how the people who made it up thought, and how their minds worked, and how, how they thought the human mind worked. And on that note, I'm going to throw another one into the mix here, and we'll see what we can do with that. This is the creation from Hesiod's Theogony, starting at line 116. And Hesiod is a contemporary of Homer. Neither one of them may have actually been real historical figures, I don't know. But uh, their dates are, we'll say, about 800 BC. So, kind of in the same ballpark as Genesis, maybe a little bit older. And this is how this is how Hesiod has things coming about. Chaos was first of all, but next appeared broad-bosomed earth, sure standing place for all the gods who live on snowy Olympus Peak, and misty Tartarus in a recess of broad-pathed earth, and love most beautiful of all the deathless gods. He makes men weak, he overpowers the clever mind, and tames the spirit in the breasts of men and gods. From chaos came black night and Erebus, and night in turn gave birth to day and space, whom she conceived in love to Erebus. And earth bore starry heaven first, to be an equal to herself, to cover her all over, and to be a resting place, always secure, for all the blessed gods. Then she brought forth long hills and lovely homes of goddesses and nymphs who live among the mountain clefts. And then, without pleasant love, she bore the barren sea with its swollen waves, Pontus, and she lay with heaven and bore deep-swirling Oceanus and Koyos. 
then we go on for a long list of other gods, which I don't need to get into right now. What I do want to talk about right now is that once again, we're in this position of not having the gods create the stuff from nothing. And as I said, even, even in Genesis, if you simply read what the text says, rather than reading through a mandatory theology that says it has to be creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing, then it's not creation ex nihilo. The creative principle, the divine, is working on material that's already there in the narrative. And in Hesiod, the same thing is true. We begin not with nothing, but with chaos. And the first move is simply for Earth to form spontaneously. So there's this separation of solidity from this ambient chaos, which seems to have the potential for everything, but isn't organized. And this seems to be the common motif in all of the myths that we've looked at so far. That is, the stuff was already there. So what we're looking at is not the creation of the stuff, but to use terms that Pythagoras coined, we're looking at the emergence of cosmos from chaos, of order from disorder, of of order and structure from potential. And yes, once in Hesiod Earth is formed, then and Earth is Gaia, then there are gods that interact and further refine the process. But that initial spontaneous arising of Gaia from chaos is absolutely marvelous. And that emergence of of order from disorder. It's not just order from disorder, I don't think, because as I said, when we read this as an account of the psyche, and I think it works much better as an account of the psyche than it does as an account of actually what's out there, because no ancient culture had the tools to even know what questions to ask about how things came to be the way they are. Those are new. But the processes here are largely processes of thought. It's an understanding of how the mind works. Now, to, to, to highlight that, I want to bring one more creation story into the mix, and then we're going to move on to a different theme, because I've got a few things I'd like to talk about, getting pretty excited about this, to tell you the truth. In the meantime, though, I want to move to a completely different part of the world. This next bit is actually my favorite ancient creation account, and this is Chapter 1 of the Chinese text, the Tao Te Ching, which dates to about the 4th century BC. It's one of the two most important classical texts in Taoism. The translation I'm using is David Hinton's. And here's how it goes. A way called way isn't the perennial way. A name that names isn't the perennial name. The named is the mother of the ten thousand things, but the unnamed is the origin of all heaven and earth. In perennial absence you see mystery, and in perennial presence you see appearance. Though the two are one and the same, once they arise they differ in name. One and the same they are called dark enigma, dark enigma, deep within dark enigma, gateway of all mystery. Huh. Isn't that lovely? But what the hell's it about? Well, way here, the word Hinton translates as way is Tao, and it's one of the most important words in Chinese philosophy. It can mean road, way, method, path, track. And uh, in Taoism, it's simply, again, way, the way by which things are. It has that metaphysical sense. But what we see here is, again, an arising of difference. And what the text says quite clearly is whatever you can hang a name on isn't the way itself. So we're looking, as we are, I think, with, with Hesiod, and as I would argue we are with Genesis, and as I'm pretty sure we are with the Hulupu tree, we're looking at the emergence of consciousness, the breaking, the separating of the world of thought and the world of perception into categories. Because the mind needs categories. So we're not making the world. We're making the mental mechanisms through which we can actually perceive the world in a way that we can understand it. 
But in doing so, we're no longer seeing the world, we're seeing our categories. Thus, the way that can be named is not the actual way. And there's this element of, of the arising of consciousness, which is, I'm not going to say uniquely human faculty, because I'm pretty sure it's not, but it is distinctly human. It's something that we categorize ourselves as having. And this to me is far more interesting than reading these tales as actual creation stories. They're about us. They're about how our mind works. They're about how we see. And looked at that way, they give us tools to look into ourselves and to look into other people and to recognize our own limitations, the limitations of our reasoning capacities, the limitations of our perceptions, but also the flexibility that we have to make new categories and thus give rise to new perceptions. And that is, I'm going to suggest, about 90% of what creativity actually is. And now, well, where do we go next? We've said a little bit about creation, a little bit about time. I'm really having a hankering to head north. Visit my people, the Celts and the Vikings, and talk about their myths for a bit. But before I do, it would be rude not to at least stop in briefly in Rome. And there's a guy I want to introduce you to. Dude's name is Lucretius, and he is a very old friend. He will be the subject of probably multiple episodes in the future, because in his, in his book, in his poem, I think are most of the seeds of modernity. And the reason I'm stopping by there today is that I've proposed a completely metaphorical reading of mythological texts, and I don't want to come across as if I'm being anachronistic, because of course this is a very modern proposition. But Lucretius, in De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things, suggests exactly that kind of reading. So why don't we take a look about what he has to say about the gods. So what do we say about Lucretius? Well, he died about 55 BC. He was deeply read in Epicurean philosophy, and in fact actually preserves the best account of Epicurean philosophy from the point of view of an Epicurean. His book on the nature of things came within one manuscript of being erased forever thanks to Christian persecution, but it was recovered in 1517, I can't remember the exact year, but early 15th century. And I want to go on waxing poetic about him because he is one of my intellectual and poetic heroes. I'll save that for another episode. As far as the gods are concerned, <laughs> he is fucking brilliant. He begins the poem with a wonderful invocation of the goddess Venus, who is Aphrodite, who is Ishtar, who is Inanna. He doesn't know that. All of that. And, uh, and later on, like in book two, it's a six-book poem, he changes the ground a bit. And I'm going to read you the poem, the beginning of the poem, and a bit from book two when he actually lets us know what he's really up to. Hope you like it. So, here's the beginning of On the Nature of Things by Lucretius. This translation is by A.E. Stallings and published by Penguin. Life-stirring Venus, mother of Aeneas and of Rome, Pleasure of men and gods, you make all things beneath the dome of sliding constellations teem. You throng the fruited earth and the ship-freighted sea, for every species comes to birth conceived through you, and rises forth and gazes on the light. The winds flee from you, goddess, your arrival puts to flight the clouds of heaven. For you, the crafty earth contrives sweet flowers. For you, the oceans laugh. The skies grow peaceful after showers awash with light. For soon as morning wears the face of spring, and the west wind is free and freshens, warm and quickening, the airy tribe of birds, O Holy One, is first to start heralding your approach, struck with your power through the heart. Then beasts, the wild and tame alike, go romping over the lush pasture land and swim across rivers' headlong rush. So eagerly does each pant after you, so do they heed, caught in the chains of love, and follow you wherever you lead. 
all through the seas and mountains, torrents, leafy-roofed abodes of birds and greening meadows, your delicious yearning goads the breast of every creature, and you urge all things you find lustily to get new generations of their kind. Because alone you steer the nature of things upon its course, and nothing can rise without you on light's shining shores, and nothing glad or lovely can be fashioned, I invite you, goddess, Stand beside me, be my partner as I write the nature of things, these verses I am contriving to set down for Memmius, my friend, your favorite, whom you would crown with every honor and with everlasting accolades, more reason to endow my words with grace that never fades. Well, this is a nice introduction, isn't it? In many ways it's conventional, it invokes a goddess to act as muse, in this case Venus. This is a standard move in epic poetry, and I think Lucretius's original audience would have been quite comfortable with much of what he was doing. He's attributing to the goddess things that, at least on the surface, look appropriate to attribute to her. She's the goddess of love and reproduction, and he attributes to her the desires that move people, the desires that move not just people, but all, all living beings. He gets, I think, a little unconventional when he says that she alone is responsible for the nature of things. There are, of course, lots of other gods in the Roman pantheon, and some of them are quite fun. So to attribute to one goddess the nature of reality, at least as we experience it, looks like he's giving her a bit of a promotion. And he is onto something here. And it's not just that Venus the figure of Venus, what she embodies, accounts for the processes of life. There's also something in the human psyche that she accounts for, and I would argue a psyche that doesn't have an element of Venus, of Aphrodite, of Ishtar, of Inanna, is as psychologically dead and arid a mental space as, as I can probably imagine. And this is something that when I look at the Greek gods, for example, or the Roman gods, or the other gods in various pantheons. But I'm thinking now of the Greek and Roman ones, specifically the Olympians, of whom Venus Aphrodite is one. The Olympians all sit down at the table on Mount Olympus, and regardless of their disagreements, they do form a society. They do talk to each other. They do argue. But the process of much classical poetry, much classical epic, is the process of the gods working out in the human world what it is they embody, but also, read another way, it's a process of the human mind coming to terms with all of those elements that they poetically embody in the gods. And this is why I like polytheism. There is no single divine point of view. There's room for a multiplicity of ways of being, where in monotheism I find that this multiplicity is, uh, is, is lacking. Which is why I suppose that the wars of conquest and conversion and the violent suppression of one religion by another tends to be done by monotheistic religions, monotheistic religious organizations, doesn't tend to happen that much with polytheism. In fact, I don't know of any instance where it has. So I may as well have this just out in the open too. I can think of few more dangerous things, maybe none than an absolute commitment to a unitary truth, be that a supposed religious truth or a political ideology. Doesn't matter. Where truth becomes singular in practice, where the impulse, where the insistence is that everyone accept the same truth, a genuine community of ideas becomes very, very difficult to maintain. I will be picking this theme up fairly soon when I discuss dominion theology or dominionism in American politics. But okay, getting back to Venus. She's the goddess that moves things. She's the goddess that accounts for that which moves us. But then, it doesn't take Lucretius long to completely change the ground on us. Now, I'll be coming back to him in a future episode, like I said, so for now, I'm going to skip to book two where he specifically addresses the nature of the gods themselves. So we'll pick it up at Book 2, Line 573. 
And so the war is ever being waged and ever tossed between creation and destruction, neither won nor lost, now here, now there, the forces of vitality prevail, and now they are defeated in their turn. The funeral wail is mixed together with the sound of newborn babies' cries. When the infants first behold the shores of light before their eyes, and no night follows day, and no day from the night emerges, which does not hear the feeble mules of babes mixed with the dirges, which are the retinue of death and of the dusky grave. And here is one thing that it would be wise for you to save, signed and sealed in the bank of memory, that you can find nothing that's composed of atoms of a single kind. There's nothing that does not consist of different seeds combined. And the more powers and qualities a thing has, so we find the more it must contain shapes numerous and diverse. Behold, the earth contains both particles which are the source of cold, hence gushing springs eternally refresh the boundless deep, while also it contains the atoms from which fires leap, for the ground in many a place is burning right beneath our feet, while from the bowels of earth Mount Etna spews its raging heat. The earth is also able to bring forth the shining sheaves of grain and fruitful trees for humankind, the streams and leaves, and fodder for the mountain-prowling beasts. Thus she is known as the Great Mother, Mother of gods and wild beasts. She alone is creator of our bodies. And she is the goddess shown in songs of ancient Greek bards learned in poetic science, driving in a chariot drawn by a brace of lions. The poets symbolize that earth rests not on earth, but hangs suspended in a space of air. They yoked wild beasts with fangs in order to represent that offspring, though they may be wild, should be tamed by the kindness of their parents and made mild. And they portrayed her wearing fortifications for a crown, since she is what holds strategic ramparts of a town. These are the Holy Mother's attributes, and thus portrayed the world over. Her effigy is carried in parade with awesome pomp. Okay, well, that is just lovely, isn't it? And it's a pretty interesting way of looking at the gods. Because what Lucretius is doing here is he's arguing for a world, arguing for a worldview that is actually foundational to Western humanism. A world, a cosmos, that's entirely naturalistic, whose component parts are just atoms and void, matter and space with no interference from any divine beings whatsoever. So he recognizes that the gods are poetic representations of the physical forces that move the universe or the physical elements that move the world. And he recognizes as well that speaking about them poetically can move us in ways that speaking about them clinically can't. That is, Lucretius gives us a way to hold on to mythology, which is a good thing while simultaneously ditching religion, which he identifies as the most pernicious force in the world. And as I talk about this, I think I'll have to dedicate an episode to him exclusively very, very soon. In the meanwhile, I think it is time now, with this metaphoric reading in mind and this notion that seeing gods, seeing mythological figures, characters, situations in in a purely poetic light, is a useful way of looking at them and isn't unique to the modern world. I think it's time we actually go north, and our next stop will be medieval Wales. But what do we say about medieval Wales? Why go there specifically? Well, part of the reason is simply that I have a long-standing interest in Celtic mythology. There are some wonderful stories from that part of the world, and many of them preserve mythological motifs and characters and settings from the thought world that existed before the conversion. Now, unfortunately, and this is also the case with, with Germanic mythology, none of it was written down. It was orally transmitted. So all of the written records we have of either mythology come down to us from after the conversion. So they come through Christian eyes, through Christian hands. So we don't have the thought world itself. We have a pale reflection of it. And we have to read through sometimes many layers to get to some indication, some idea 
of what that thought world actually was. And the places that give us the best records are Ireland and Wales for the, the Celtic world and Iceland for the Germanic world. Unfortunately, in most other places, traditions were simply not preserved. But okay, that's only part of the reason. I'm also interested in looking at the encounter with the other, because so much of mythology, whether it's Abrahamic mythology or Greek or Roman, Celtic, Germanic, Hindu, you name it, it's about how we understand the other, what we understand the other to be. And the way a mythology constructs the relationship with the other has a definite impact on the way people think and the way people behave. And if you want to look at construction or representation of the other, then other worlds are a really good place to look. This is one of the reasons why I've chosen the particular passage from the particular text that I'll be reading to you in a minute. It's from the Welsh Arthurian romance, Peridor, preserved in a collection known as the Mabinogion. Peridor is the Welsh Percival, and the text itself, the tale itself, is obviously adapted from continental material, from French material. But there are elements to it that are distinctly Welsh. And even where this is not the case, much of the setting of medieval romance as a genre, which is probably my favorite literary genre, comes from Celtic sources. So what this means is that one of the best repositories we have of otherwise lost Celtic mythology is not just romance, but particularly Arthurian romance. In any case, I think it's time we look at the text. Now, during this scene, Peridor is a, is a questing knight, and he's engaged in a number of encounters already at this point. I'm not going to sum the story up just as a, as a matter of time. What matters here is the setting. Peridor is on what will turn out to be the track to his culminating adventure, and he comes to a river crossing. Now, river crossings, of course, are natural borders. And very often in romance, when we come to a natural border, if there's something unusual about it, it's not just a border in the political sense. We're moving into a very different kind of place. We may not be going to the other world literally, but very often the forest itself in these stories takes on otherworldly characteristics. If this happens, or when this happens, there's usually some narrative cue that lets the reader know that there's a shift taking place. This is what happens at this particular river. And the description is one of the best representations I've ever seen of, of the Celtic approach to the other world. Whereas in Christianity, for example, the other world can only be heaven, hell, or purgatory if you're Catholic. There are no other worlds. But in many pagan mythologies, there are multiple worlds, each with its own distinct characteristics. So as we're looking at this next passage, just pay attention to the details of how things are described and what type of relationship between this world and the other world is implied. The translation I'll be reading from is by Gwyn Jones and Thomas Jones and put out by Everyman. I'm not sure if this particular one is still in print, but there's also an excellent translation available by Jeffrey Gantz from Penguin. In any case, here it is. And he came his way towards a river valley, and the bounds of the valley were forest, and on either side of the river level meadows. And one side of the river he could see a flock of white sheep, and on the other side he could see a flock of black sheep. And as one of the white sheep bleated, one of the black sheep would come across, and would be white. And as one of the black sheep bleated, one of the white sheep would come across, and would be black. And he could see a tall tree on the river bank, and the one half of it was burning from its roots to its tip, 
and the other half with green leaves on it, and beyond that he could see a squire seated atop a mound, and two greyhounds, white-breasted, brindled, on a leash lying beside him, and he felt certain that he had never seen a squire of such princely mane as he, and in the forest fronting him he could hear staghounds raising a herd of stags, and he greeted the squire, and the squire greeted Peridor. Okay, that is kind of a weird description, isn't it? And there are a few elements I'd like to pay attention to. The two obvious ones are the sheep and the tree. The sheep crossing over the river and changing color are a wonderful, wonderful image of an organic relationship between this world and the other world. That is, the relationship is not antagonistic. It's reciprocal and ongoing, and we might even say mutually sustaining. It's a very active living relationship. But then there's the tree, that wonderful tree that is half in flames and half green and living. This is another way of looking at the relationship with the other world. The flaming part, of course, being the otherworldly part and the green part being a normal tree. And that's to realize that it is one tree. That is to say, the other world is also this world. The other world is always present in this world. It's just not always seen. Then we have the young noble sitting on top of a mound. Now, in both Welsh and Irish storytelling, mounds, burial mounds, the word is sheath in both Welsh and Irish, are typically entry points to the other world. And in fact, one of the Irish names for the other world people is the sheath. So this is a lovely description. It pretty much screams other world to anyone who knows how to read the symbols. But why am I talking about it? Well, for one thing, it's fun. But more importantly, I think there's a lot here that we can read psychologically, poetically. That is, just as the gods aren't real, but they still say a lot about us, the other world isn't real, but it still says a lot about us. There's a visual while a narrative representation of the other here, with which the mundane world is in organic relationship, is in reciprocal relationship. This is not a fearful stance toward the other. This is an acknowledgement that the other is also always there, and that the border is not fixed, that the border can be crossed either way, and crossing crossing the border between self and other, as the sheep do, can be truly transformative. And isn't it, isn't it true that borders are really most interesting when they're crossed? I mean, as I, as I sit here talking into the microphone, um, I've not seen my fiance in four months because she's on the other side of the border that thanks to COVID-19, neither of us can cross. I like borders a whole lot better when they're open. Because closed borders make our world smaller, don't they? And this is true psychologically as well as politically. But then, of course, the tree. That flaming green tree. That's a wonderful statement of psychological unity, isn't it? That wildness, that otherness, is always already in you. The image seems to recognize that too. And while it can be intimidating... It's also quite possibly, quite probably, necessary to be complete, or if you want to be complete, recognizing that element of your character, the wild element of your character, the part of your character that is outside the borders, that's outside the conventional borders. This is where poetry comes from. This is where creativity comes from. This is where growth comes from. But it's also dangerous. You can't have one without the other. And even the mound as, as an entry point, that suggests something as well. Of course, these mounds are associated with death, aren't they? They're burial mounds. Often. <laughs> I've actually been in a couple, and it's really interesting. On the one hand, it looks like the crossing is associated then with death, doesn't it? But death of what? Is it literal death? Maybe. Or is it simply death to the 
limitations, the constructed limitations within which we all live, but that aren't real and in fact are really just products of consciousness, categories of thought, as we saw with the Tao Te Ching. So as I said, this is a, a, a rich and beautiful image, and it speaks to, I think, a rich and beautiful way of understanding oneself and one's relationship with the other, individually, socially. And on that note, I think I'm going to have to admit that I <laughs> I can't do everything I wanted to do in a single episode. So I'll be wrapping this up now and continuing next episode. And I think what I want to look at next episode is a selection of myths about the end of the world, because that's always a happy topic. And read those against each other and see what they have to say about the various understandings of human worth and human teleology. In the meantime, of course, if you have any thoughts or questions on this episode, you can reach me at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com or on the Eclectic Humanist Facebook page. You can also find me at EC Humanist on Twitter. I would, of course, love to hear from you and I would love to have some comments on what you think about this episode or suggestions, as I've said before, for other episodes, things that you might like to explore together. Until then, though, thank you for listening as always. And as always, be kind to each other. Or you shall die.